You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. This is what remains of the Médecins Sans Frontières Hospital in Kunduz. The first of the 211 shells was fired at around 2 a.m. in an onslaught that would last almost an hour. About 180 staff and patients were inside the hospital when a U.S. gunship launched an overhead assault that lasted for more than an hour. Welcome to this special episode of Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known as MSF. The 3rd of October will be remembered as one of the darkest days in MSF's history. In the early hours of that Saturday in late 2015, 42 people, including 14 MSF staff, were killed in a US airstrike on our Kunduz trauma center in Afghanistan. They join the countless number of people who have been killed around the world in conflict zones, people who are often referred to as collateral damage or as an inevitable consequence of war. But this was not just an attack on our hospital, it was an attack on the Geneva Conventions. The horror of that night woke the world to the growing number of attacks on health workers and health structures in places like Syria, Yemen and South Sudan, among other countries, causing intolerable suffering, death and destruction. The trauma centre was the only facility of its kind in northeast Afghanistan, providing free, life and limb-saving trauma care. Now, without it, tens of thousands of people in Kunduz and the surrounding area have no recourse to surgical care. Just days before the attack, opposition forces had taken control of Kunduz. It was the first time since 2001 that opposition forces had taken control of a major Afghan city. Intense fighting raged in that week leading up to the 3rd of October. Our 80-strong team, made up of Afghan and international staff, had treated 394 people in the hospital. One member of the team, who was in the hospital compound on the night of the attack, was Cass Thomas, an intensive care doctor from Australia. Cass was on her first mission with MSF. Cass delivered a talk to MSF supporters in Dublin about her experience on the night of the attack in Kunduz. We have a recording of that talk and we'll be hearing some excerpts. We also asked Cass to join us over Skype to answer some follow-up questions. Please be warned that Cass gives a frank account of what occurred that night and some listeners may find it distressing. I started by asking her about her decision to go to Afghanistan. My decision to go to Afghanistan was one that I took, it didn't take lightly, it took a lot of uh, personal research and discussion with my partner, um, discussion with other people who had gone to Kunduz in order to feel confident in my decision making um, to, to accept the mission. But certainly one of the things that I, I thought about and explored and one of the things that kept coming up when I spoke to people who had been to Kunduz in the past was that there was a sense that um, we were protected, that hospitals were a protective facility, um, and that that was uh, enforced by international humanitarian law. It was um, insured by MSF's work between, you know, in, in negotiating between the Taliban and the Afghan forces. And there was a sense that despite the conflict, that, that the hospital was regarded well and was a place that was safe and that would be respected. Soon after her arrival in Kunduz, Cass found herself in the midst of heavy fighting between Afghan and opposition forces. 
And as Cass explained in her talk to MSF supporters in Dublin, after several months in Kunduz, the sound of war became all too familiar. These are the sounds that woke me from sleep at about two o'clock in the morning last September 28th. After four and a half months in northern Afghanistan, I've grown accustomed to the sounds of war. Kalashnikovs, artillery fire, bomb blasts, they had all become part of the normal background noise that was interrupted five times a day by the local imams called to prayer. Afghan and opposition forces were battling for control of Kunduz. The fighting was dynamic and the front line constantly shifted, so staff at the hospital were sometimes forced to hole up within the hospital compounds. It made it very difficult for staff to both enter the hospital but also to leave. So what ended up happening, uh, certainly for us, we it wasn't safe to make the journey back to our house. So we had to set up camp in the hospital and we did that in the meeting room, which is where I was at the time of the attack. Um, but many of the other staff, their staff were staying in the hospital also. So while camping in the hospital and with no respite from the bitter conflict raging outside, Cass and the team saw a stream of casualties passing through the hospital in the days leading up to the 3rd of October. Treating the many civilians who entered our hospital, struck by a stray bullet, a random roadside explosion, a missile crashing through the ceiling, was a constant reminder that beyond our walls was an unpredictable environment. It was very dangerous. Watching the fighter jets fly above us, hearing machine gun fire so close that we had instinctively lunged to the floor, feeling the vibrations of nearby explosions, again kept us on edge about the ongoing war. On the night of the attack, Cass was sleeping in the hospital meeting room along with many other international staff who had set up camp there. The room was located about 50 metres from the main building which housed the intensive care unit, the emergency and outpatient departments and the operating theatre. It was in this small room, the hospital meeting room, where I was on October 3rd at 2.08 in the morning when I was ripped awake by the first vupa. I could feel the vibrations in my chest and I instinctively covered my ears to protect my eardrums from rupture. This was a totally different type of sound than anything previous we had heard and much, much closer. At this moment, Cass didn't realise just how close the bombing actually was. She recalls her initial reaction in the aftermath of that first explosion. There was a, an immediate sense of overwhelming fear um, and I discovered the impact that fear has on, on the way your brain works. My immediate reaction was, holy shit, that is an extremely close explosion. Because we and we had heard lots of lots of very close explosions. And I had woken up nights before with that with loud sounds. Um, so my initial reaction was just to get dressed because we were all sleeping at the time and I um, put, tried to put on my headscarf and I remember that taking ages. Um, I just couldn't figure out how to do how to do it. <laughs> um, but it wasn't it wasn't long before the next um, large explosion um, at which point I think we were all, yeah, fearing the worst, um, absolutely shocked, uh, <laughs> not knowing really what to do with ourselves. So we sort of huddled together. I was huddled with one of the other um, theatre nurses who was also asleep in the room at the time, and I remember her body just shaking in absolute fear. Um, and essentially it felt like we were waiting to be struck. There was definitely an anticipation that that next explosion was going to hit us. Um, 
and we tried to uh, make light of the situation at the time. We tried sort of discussing where would be the safest place to be. Should we be away from the window, close to the door? How, what should we do? Should we turn the lights on, keep them off? As the carnage unfolded around her, Cass's thoughts turned to her family back home. There were thoughts about, um, you know, whether I should call home, um, you know, and let them know that I love them and um, if anything happened. <laughs> yeah. But um, I decided not to, actually, and I was disappointed to, to find that there was no, like, you know, life flashing before my eyes or anything dramatic like you'd seen in the movies or what I anticipated. Um, it was just uh, overwhelming fear. Still uncertain just how close the bombs were, Cass and her colleagues lay trapped, helpless, in a state of absolute shock. I felt adrenaline pumping through my body. My legs tingled, my mouth was so dry, my hands were shaking. I scrambled to put on my jacket and my headscarf while looking around at the three expat nurses in the room, terrified, their terrified expressions. It sounds like they're bombing the hospital, was our thought. More explosions followed. They came in very quick succession. We had no idea what was going on. It was dark in the room and we didn't dare turn the lights on. One of the nurses tried to look outside on several occasions, but every time he opened the door, heavy debris would fly around and hit the walls. I tried phoning everyone that wasn't in the room with us, unsuccessfully. The ICU, the ED staff, all the other expats, but all the phones were off. We scurried around the room like rats in a cage, trying to figure out the safest place to be in case we took a direct hit but we knew by the magnitude of that sound that in a direct hit, there would be no safe place. We were overwhelmed with gripping fear. It's difficult to imagine just how terrifying it must have been coming under sustained aerial bombardment, but the horror of that night was only just beginning. We heard a voice calling from outside. Jax opened the door, one of the ED nurses, and there wavered one of our Afghani colleagues, an excellent ED nurse. All four of us froze as we absorbed the scene from a horror film. He looked like a zombie. He was backlit. His left arm hung by a small piece of skin. He was coated in thick grey dust. His bloody clothes were shredded. Several large gaping wounds were all over his body and a piece of metal stuck out of his back. His right arm's eye streamed blood. Then he collapsed. We pulled him inside by his feet. Panic welling up inside me, I leant over and said, where were you when you were hit? I was in the emergency department, he replied. I was struck by disbelief. No, 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 he, he, must have, he must have misheard me. I asked the question again. Where were you when you were struck? You must have been outside the ED. Were you outside? No, he said. I was inside the ED. Inside. For me, this is the moment the reality hit. It really was the worst case scenario. Oh shit, they really are bombing the hospital. Cass had little time to come to terms with the fact that the hospital itself was under attack. Soon after that, our meeting room and the three surrounding rooms were filled with injured people bringing absolute chaos. Most of them were colleagues, friends, some patients, all covered in the same thick dust. The injuries were the same as what we had been treating all week penetrating chest wounds, open fractures with extensive soft tissue damage, traumatic amputations. At first, it was just me, three nurses, and a basic first aid kit. It's hard to describe that feeling of being surrounded by friends and colleagues, with life-threatening injuries, calling out your name, begging for help, 
that you have no capacity to give them. It was absolutely horrendous. As she attended to the wounded, Cass discovered that it was not only the patients who had been mortally injured, but her colleagues as well. The first was Tashil, our hospital pharmacist. I dry wretched when I saw his limp body being carried in and laid on the ground. His pants were soaked in blood. He was unconscious and he had agonal breaths. I knew it was too late for him, so I simply had to turn my head and move on to those who still had a chance. The second was Dr. Amin, the senior doctor in ED that night that I mentioned earlier. He'd been hit by a missile and suffered a devastating injury to his right leg. Despite the blood loss, he was conscious on arrival and begging me for morphine, which I didn't have. Soon it was evident that he was in hemorrhagic shock. The surgeons wanted to operate. I think we all knew that it was futile, but our judgment was clouded by the fact that he was our friend and he was dying in front of our eyes. We moved some patients around and set up a makeshift operating table in what was normally a kitchen. Several surgeons gathered, opening his abdomen and his leg to find the source of bleeding. I stared at his ashen face, too afraid to feel for a pulse, trying desperately, unsuccessfully, to figure out how I could give him my blood. But soon it was clear that it was too late, and Dr. Amin was also declared dead. As the full horror of what was happening began to sink in, shock turned to anguish as Cass and her team began to mourn the loss of their colleagues. Waves of grief spread amongst us in the room that night, not only for the deaths of Dr. Amin and Tashil, but also when the news arrived, confirming yet another death in the main building. All the while, I was keeping track of who was arriving and who was still missing. Of note, most of the ICU staff had not yet shown up. As the sun rose that morning, we were able to organise ambulances to take injured patients to other hospitals outside of Kunduz. Taking the patients to the ambulance was the first time I had left the meeting room and seen the devastation with my own eyes. The main building was completely destroyed, ravaged by fire. The windows were blown out, the roof was completely deformed or totally missing. It was utterly horrifying. Soon after that, we, the expats, were evacuated. Taking in the final view of the burnt out shell of the hospital as our vehicle pulled away, I hoped with all my might that Dr. Usmani and the other ICU staff were somehow okay. But they were not. The MSF hospital in Kunduz had been targeted by a US AC 130 gunship. The first target was the intensive care unit. A shell landed right in the middle of the ICU. We had seven patients in the intensive care at the time of the attack. Three were on ventilators. One of them was our head injured ED nurse, Al Muhammad. The other two were chest and spinal cord injured patients. I hope with all my might that Lal Muhammad was sedated enough to be unaware of his situation. But I know that the other two were awake and even if they were able to rip themselves off those ventilators, their spinal injuries and therefore their paralysis would have prevented escape. So when the missiles ripped through the ceiling in the intensive care unit and the whole unit went up in flames, all of those patients were killed, witnessed burning alive in their beds. Our final intubated ICU patient was in theatre at the time of the attack. He was found dead on the operating table later. There was one little miracle amongst that. The only ICU surviving patient was a three-year-old girl named Shaista, 
who had suffered a horrific blast injury, yet was recovering in our intensive care. By some miracle, she was scooped up off her bed and rushed out of the building. This devastation was just the intensive care. The rest of the main building suffered the same fate, including the emergency department, the theatre, the outpatient department, where many of the staff were sleeping that night. People fleeing the main building, like Tashiel, were picked off by machine gun fire. 42 people were killed, 14 of them were our staff. Countless others were injured, many suffering injuries that will make them unemployable in Afghanistan. Forty-two people were killed during an attack that lasted around an hour. More than 100 explosive rounds were fired as well as hundreds of rounds of machine gun fire. Cass and the rest of the international staff were soon evacuated, but in the weeks following Kunduz, more MSF hospitals came under fire. The Saudi-led coalition attacked an MSF-supported hospital in Hayden, in Yemen. Then, one month later, another MSF hospital in Homs, Syria, was destroyed by a barrel bomb. Just four days later, yet another MSF hospital was hit in Taiz, also in Yemen. As recently as last week, on the 28th of September, the day MSF's international president, Joanne Liu, addressed the UN Security Council about attacks on healthcare, two more MSF-supported hospitals were hit in Aleppo, rendering them out of service. Every time an MSF hospital or supported hospital is attacked in this way, we have to make an incredibly difficult decision about whether to withdraw from the area or risk the lives of our staff. But opting to withdraw from our projects has inevitable consequences for the people left behind, not least in Kunduz. Oh, there are so many effects. There's the immediate effect of, of the fact that there is no trauma facility in all of northern Afghanistan. Um, now, unfortunately, despite MSF wanting to reopen, they have not been able to get the reassurances they need to reopen the Kunduz Trauma Center. And therefore, the, the hospitals that are remaining don't have the facilities or the expertise to provide um, high-quality war um, uh, or, or injury um, management. Um, so there's the immediate effect with patients not being able to, um, to access treatment. Um, and a lot of patients, you know, we talk about the golden hour in trauma and it's that first hour of, of resuscitation and getting patients in and I can guarantee that there are patients now in Kunduz, um, civilians uh, and um, combatants alike, who are still receiving horrible injuries because the fighting season is now continuing to go on as, it, as, it, as, it, as expected. Um, they're, they're having these injuries and they have nowhere to go. Uh, so there's that effect on the on the community in Kunduz. Um, that's just devastating. Um, on top of that, the Afghani staff, which made up the majority of the workforce in the Kunduz Trauma Centre, at the moment have no employment. Um, and a lot of those staff members were the breadwinners for an entire family or several families, including extended family. So that loss of um, employment is going to be a major problem for them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I'm in touch with a lot of the, the MSF staff, Afghani staff, um, and they're, they continue to hope for the, the hospital to reopen. They continue to be devastated by, um, by the ongoing conflict in these regions, and they really feel no sense of hope that, that this will improve. 
so it's just awful. Understandably, after surviving this terrifying ordeal, Cass won't be returning to the front line anytime soon. Nevertheless, she's determined to carry on the good work she started in Kunduz and won't be hanging up her scrubs just yet. Uh, I would absolutely love to go back on another mission. Um, I think if I was single <laughs> and I didn't have a family that was a little bit traumatised by what happened, <laughs> I'd be back there and now. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, um, I do have a family and a partner who was quite affected by everything that happened and um, I don't think I could put them through that again at this stage. But um, the work uh, in Afghanistan before the attack was just phenomenal and, you know, I don't think I could ever see the world the same way. I can never see work here in Australia, in the hospitals here, the same way. And um, certainly my, my aim is now to figure out a way to continue working um, either with MSF or other international NGOs um, or with other doctors in developing countries um, to, con to, to help to support, to continue to support them in, in some way. Um, I'm figuring out how to do that now. Um, but certainly I would love to go on another mission and it might be, you know, in 10 years from now or it might be for in a few years from now or it might be next year, I'm not sure. But um, this has certainly ignited a passion in me that I, I can't ignore. Thank you so much, Cass. I don't, I don't want to, um, to keep you any longer. Um, it's, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm just really glad to hear that you're doing well. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. The world has reached a disturbing tipping point in modern warfare. After World War II, hundreds of countries agreed to protect civilians by signing on to the Geneva Conventions. Today, these same countries are now ruthlessly bombing civilian targets. The states that signed the Geneva Conventions, including United Nations member states and members of the UN Security Council, no longer seem compelled to uphold international humanitarian law, which regulates just and proportionate warfare. We cannot accept that this new normal should define modern warfare. The targeted killing of civilians, medical staff and patients cannot continue, regardless of which armed force or forces are responsible. If you're still listening, it's probably because you care about this issue. If you would like to help, our ask is simple. Spread the word. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, or whoever's prepared to listen about this worrying trend. Only through an increase in public awareness can we begin to make a change. Look for the hashtag NotATarget online and get involved. If you're looking for information to share, visit msf.org.uk slash notatarget and join the conversation. Thank you. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.